This is Make Yourself at Home, BizNow's podcast where we hear from people in real estate about the pandemic and how it's shaped and reshaped their businesses. I'm Miriam Hall. I'm BizNow's New York reporter. On this episode, Keith Gordon, the managing partner of NCV Capital Partners, a for-profit affordable housing developer and manager with hundreds of units in the Bronx and Harlem. He's talking here about how he's dealt with tenants who failed to pay rent in the crisis, the impact of the state's eviction moratorium on smaller landlords like himself, and the slow rollout of the federal government's funding for renters and landlords in distress. It was real dicey, let's say, March and April of 2020. And so I think there's three stages I put. First, the hair is on fire stage, where everyone's just trying to hold serve and figure out what's going on. Then there's, okay, the world's not so bad, you know, and then things began to stabilize. Rents began to stabilize in the low to mid-80s, right, as I mentioned. And then now people are seeing past the pandemic and things are opening back up. And so there's a lot more optimism. Um, so what I say is that I think that it's, um, you know, you may have been looking in the, you know, high 70s in March and April or, you know, in the 70s, and then it got progressively better. And now I think we're optimistic that we can probably get, hopefully get back to normal sometimes by the end of the year. So that's in terms of percentage, that's across the portfolio, it went down to about 70% you were collecting, then then it's gone back up to 80% or so. Is it about that stage now? Yeah, it's the mid 80s at this point, you know, is where it is now. When you're talking about a portfolio, is it that full whole units aren't paying? Or is it that a lot of people across the board are only paying some of their rent? What? How does it look when you kind of have a look at the numbers? To answer your question, it's been more individuals that, I mean, people that have that stable income have paid. They've, they've overperformed and they, they didn't want to gain the system. They've been very loyal payers. Where we've been focused on the individuals that have been adversely affected by the pandemic. And what we've done is, you know, we've taken, it's forced us to take an individual look. I think as landlords in general take a, a customer focused look and understanding the individual needs of that tenant. For example, they're affected by working on, you know, Broadway or whatever or retail or, you know, we basically partner them up with nonprofits and other groups that are helping tenants that are going through uh, challenging situations. And that's, that's what we've done. I want to hear more about how you kind of bridge that, I guess, divide between landlord and, and being a, a support for your tenants. But first of all, tell me, is it, when you talk about people not paying rent, is it that they paid one month and then didn't pay for a few months or they fell behind or they've just, they're paying part of the rent. How, what are you finding is a big trend in terms of what your tenants can do and, and how they're approaching it? Well, I think that, um, I think I would look at them differently, right? So if you have um, someone that does construction work and they're receiving less hours as they were in March and April when things were shut down um, and they may have two income household, those type of tenants were paying were partial payers. Right. Um, so they take some of their rent. They'd say, this is what I can do this month. Here's some of it. Okay. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then you have others that have not, um, that are completely unemployed. And, you know, and so those have been, they, they've been more challenging to, to collect from. What did you find was the, the level of communication from, from tenants? Were there some people who just kind of went to, to ground a little bit? Well, I think when people, when we, we just paid more attention to our collections and we saw tenants that weren't paying, we, they, some of them reached out to us, but we were much more proactive at reaching out to them, mm. understanding their individual needs. And um, I think we were helpful. Where we were really pleased were with all the um, 
uh, rent restrictions and, and things like that, that we thought that a lot of tenants will game the system and not pay. And we were pleasantly surprised. Those that could pay, paid, right? And that, and I think that's the number one thing that we've seen that we're positively um, impressed by. And that is that, you know, the things that, I think they could have kind of gamed the system and not paid, but, but these were some pretty responsive tenants that if they had the means, they did pay. How do you ascertain that? That's a really difficult thing to figure out, isn't it? Is it just yeah. a, a matter of talking to them and, and understanding their circumstances? How do you figure out who's legitimately not able to pay and who is, as you say, gaming the system? Well, that's a big challenge that landlords always have, right? So I think that what we've did is what we've done the past year is just we've just been more proactive at trying to understand and reach out to them and that we have some long-term tenants that we we know. So we're even with our people that work in buildings, we're, we're just... Um, any forms of communication, you know, you can kind of understand what's happening with your with your tenants. And I think we've done a much more um, aggressive situation with that. So I think there's no way to tell exactly what someone's motive is, you know, for, for not paying all the time. But if you know that they're struggling and they have a drop in income, then, you know, you can expect that they'll have challenges paying. So what kind of, I suppose, formal arrangements did you reach? Did you say to people, we've dropped your rent to this? Or did you defer rent? Uh, there's one thing to like be communicative, but at the end of the day, it's about a, it's a contract when you, you're right. renting an apartment. So what kind of, what kind of situations did you arrive at? Well, I think that, um, you know, one is understanding, is it a short-term drop in income or is it more of a long-term drop of income? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that, um, you know, there, I don't think you, I think you did make arrangements with tenants based upon what they could pay and, and what their situation. So it's hard to say what, what you did across the board because everyone is, has a tailored approach, right? So yeah. um, someone that has no income, but now they're gonna get back to work in a month or so, you know, then you maybe pair them with an agency to help them with their arrears. Someone that has um, a reduction in income, then maybe you're more flexible in, in, on, a, on a payment plan for them as they continue to get back to work and get back on their feet. Okay, so it wasn't across the board. Some people you did a short-term reduction in rent based on what their employment situation was and, and some people you put on payment plans, right? So, right. They, so they, there are people who, who are owing you rent, right? Right, right, absolutely. So when, you, when you're, ha- I mean, you're running a business. Yes. You're running a for-profit business. You're not running a charity, even though it is affordable housing. What's the, that shift like for you mm-hmm. as a person? I mean, 18 months ago, this wouldn't really have been something that would have had to factor into your day-to-day right I think that it had a lot of stress and anxiety on our side too because you don't know what's going to happen and then you you know you're a landlord you want to protect your workers and your you know your, your staff you know they're going into individual buildings um, in our case we were in an in-place rehab so we had all kind of financial guarantees on the line and mm-hmm. um, so I was um, you know we were pretty you know pretty stressed during that period certainly at the beginning of the pandemic and that's why I call it the, the hair on fire phase. We're just trying to figure out what's, you know, kind of what's going on. Um, but then, uh, then after time, you, you kind of, you know, you look at the landscape and you figure out, you know, and things kind of normalize towards the summer, you know, of last year. And, and now I think we're kind of looking on the other side. But when you're on the hook for financial guarantees and uh, your tenant base is, um, you know, you're worried about your tenant base with their employment and their, their health and safety and their employment situation, and you have staff there that are pretty dedicated. You want to make sure that they are safe. You know, that, that was created a lot of angst on our side. Yeah. And also, I mean, you're responsible for people's income. If you've got employees, 
Yes. Were you frightened? Did you did you have to do any layoffs? Did that did no. it come to that? No, it did not. Were you worried that that was going to be the case at one point? Um, it came to mind, but um, you know the 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 attendance to serve services, and um, and so we um, you know we just kind of um, sucked it up and and maintained all our staff, but we did not have any layoffs. There's a lot of landlords, I believe like you when we talk about the landlords in the city we, we we talk a lot about like related and like the big the big companies but there is in fact a lot of smaller operators that don't have i mean obviously i don't know the in and outs of your business but don't have enormous margins that do have mortgages and, and financial guarantees and obligations they need to make do you think that there's been a um a change in kind of people's understanding of, of, of that across the city? People see landlords maybe a little differently because they are more visible now? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I would I would hope so, right? Because I want them to understand the pain that we're going through, you know, some certainly the smaller ones. And like you said, the difference between um, an 85 and 95% collection rate is different between you making a profit some month and, and coming out of pocket to, you know, to fund operations. So it is a big, you know, it, that, that we are on small margins. And I think that the bigger guys can withstand it better. Um, but I do understand why whenever you, you know, go to lenders or, or uh, other financial partners, they, they look at some of your liquidity requirements. And I think that the, the advantage that bigger firms have are two things. One is liquidity. And two, um, you know, they have such a big portfolio and like that, that their costs are maybe a little smaller than some of the or excuse me, their costs are, yes, less than some of the smaller operators. So in a normal time, in good times, like before all, all of this happened, what were your collections like? Like well up into the late 90s, 90%? Would that be right? Well, I think that um, just to understand, we were in a, doing an in-place rehab at the mm -hmm. time. And so we, um, and in the middle of a pandemic, but they were in the 90s. And so of, of leased units, they were in the, you know, over 90%, you right. know, and, um, and not many vacancies at all on units that were, were available um so yeah so you so yeah you're looking at um you know a big drop 10 to 15 percent a month in collections and that's pretty substantial for us yeah between yeah. breaking even making a little margin to you know coming out of pocket and and writing checks yeah i mean for someone working a, a 10 to 15 percent salary reduction is very significant well no i don't i don't see it that way i see it a little differently i see it that you know up to a certain point of um of collections, you as a landlord are breaking even, right? There's a break even point. Right. So anything, anything below that, you know, you're, you're not breaking even, right? So I'm not saying it's a 10 to 15 minutes drop in, in our income. I'm saying it's on those numbers, it's, it's much more drastic. Right. So it's a difference between actually making money and not making money. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> were there people whose lease expired, who said we're out and you were able to walk around? You know, I think uh, the, the Manhattan market on the market rate side, you saw more of that. Um, but in the Bronx, these are a lot of times are, um, you know, their families in the buildings and they want to be around them. Um, a lot of them stayed through it. These are tough New Yorkers and they're not, um, you know, this is their home prior to pandemic and not going anywhere. So I think that's the benefit of certainly in the Bronx market that you have um, generational um, tenants that, you know, I've been here a long time. You may have um, someone that has an analyst at Goldman Sachs. And so yeah. March, April, they say, we're, you know, we're not going to be in play in, in the office for another six months and mm -hmm. you're at least, and you're, 
you, you know, you're over $2,000, $3,000 a month and you can work yeah. with, you know, mom's house seems very good with good internet in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. Both, <laughs> right. So if you're dealing with a different tenant base in the Bronx where, you know, my mom is here and, uh, or down the hall around the corner. Right. So uh, my old family. And I'm not leaving her basically. Not really, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so there has been obviously a lot of uh, government support. Well, theoretically. So yes. $50 billion made available by the federal government. Mm -hmm. I was just reading this week, $46 billion has already been sent to the state and uh -huh. the states and the cities. Yes. Very little of that is in the landlord's hands or the renter's hands. Have yes. you seen any of, of, of that funding yet, personally? Uh, we're still looking, right? We hear it's coming, but we just don't know when and how, right? And so, um, you know, we keep in our, you know, our ear to the street to understand how this money is going to be allocated. And it has a big effect on how we do our business and, 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 and you know, things like that, certainly since they have a rent more, an eviction moratorium through August. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I don't, so if the states have the money, we've been hearing that they are going to put it out. Um, we're just saying at this point, we, you know, we're still looking to see how, how and when they're going to do it. But we know they're going to. So you do want it, right? You, it, is, it is something that you'd want to be involved in and access. It's sure. just you don't know yet how the way that it's going to be rolled out. Is that right? That's right at this point, yes. How can that be, I must say, when it's called an, the American Rescue Plan? You know, rescues generally happen quickly. That's, mm -hmm. that's surprising. I must say I'm surprised that it hasn't. We're talking about something that happened that was passed months ago. Are you surprised? Um. Well, I mean, by the time government does anything, you know, I think in terms of being efficient, um, you know, I, I do, I am somewhat surprised, but, but like I said, I think it's, we do, the good, the good confidence we have is that it is going to come out, right? And we do think it will benefit us at this point. We're just not sure how and when. Mm. And, um, and, and at least that's better than not having the money, right? So, and we understand that it is a process. We wish the process would move faster, but we do understand it's a process and at least it's left the federal government's hands to the state. So in, in Ms. Palace, so we're just, we are um, anxiously awaiting um, it to hit the street to small landlords like ourselves. Right. That's a very glass half full approach that you've, right. <laughs> you've got there. <laughs> right, right, right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what, so we know that it's 50 billion from the federal government. And how that's kind of filtered through to New York, it's, I believe, 2.4 total when you consider the state dollars, 2.4 billion. Mm -hmm. But there have been a lot of questions around the strings attached to it. Mm -hmm. So it's not just you can get the money if you're a small landlord. Like, you have to agree not to raise rents. You have to, uh, there's certain, certain arrangements that you have to agree to. Mm -hmm. Has that been a problem for you? Have you, are you concerned about that? Yes, we are. And I think that um, anytime you receive money from the city or state, there's strings attached. Right. Right. You know what I mean? So I guess- Such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> right. Nothing's a free lunch. And, and maybe rightfully so, right? I'm not, you know, I'm just stating the facts that I think anytime any subsidy that's given to developers, to housing, whatever, the city wants something in return, whether it's, you know, um, renting to a certain tenant base, uh, income level, um, there's always, there's always some ask, right? So- we're expecting that. Um, I think we are somewhat anxious to hear what the ask is and to fully understand it. We're hearing some of what they are in terms of what you can do with um, evicting tenants and things like that. We are starting to, to hear some of it. Uh, but yes, we are anxiously awaiting to hear exactly 
what those restrictions are and what, you know, and what's going to um, be, be required. Is, is there something that would be a deal breaker for you? Is there something where the state government would say you can only get it if X um, and you'd say that's not worth it? You know what? I mean, yes, I think there are some cases to where, you know, it doesn't make sense for us. Right. But what would that be like if you can never evict somebody or, or, or you can't raise rents at all? Or is, is that what the sort of thing that you would? Buy? Right. All of the above. Right. It's a calculation. And um, and I think that, um, you know, it's an individual basis, you know, for a tenant and what their situation is um, in terms of um, are there people that, you know, are really want to pay but haven't been able to or people that can pay. Right. And, um, you know, I think that, um, yeah, the ability to evict, um, um, while we're not big on that, that's the last resort. But, you know, looking at the various restrictions um, for that money would determine whether or not it's a deal breaker and accepting it or not. So that is a concern for you is, is the evictions, right? So you're that's worried that that, yeah. that would prevent you from evicting people that really need to, that you believe really need to be kicked out. Well, I don't say kicked out, right? We don't, yeah. we don't really do that. But, but I mean, I, if, they're, if they're not paying their rent and they don't have a legitimate reason not to, and if they're a right. nuisance tenant, right? There are all reasons to evict people. From... The word is flexibility, right? Right, okay. <laughs> the word is flexibility, you know, and, okay. and, and you want all options on the table because, you know, we have uh, investors and banks and everyone else that have to, we have to make money, you know, and, and, and that's a fact. And um, so um, by giving up flexibility of what your options are to handle arrears, um, it, it handicaps you somewhat. Mm. Uh, but like I said, it's hard to pontificate or, or foresee what, you know, uh, potential scenarios we have to actually see what's out there before we can speak more on it. Have you had much communication with like the tenant advocate group side of the community and the housing advocates? I know that you've been working with like various charities and stuff like that, sure. but th there's been a big push from people who have driven forward with various regulations and the, and the tenant advocates have been really pushing forward for like support for renters and landlords. Are you one of those landlords that's working with those people or are you thinking that they're not helpful? Well, you understand my, my shop is that, you know, what we're, we're focused on is we do affordable housing mainly with nonprofits, right? right. And so our, they were, a lot of these were originated in the 1980s to be advocates for housing. So right. we're, we are always working with them. What I can tell you is that it seems that the past year or two, even prior to COVID, that the Tennessee advocacy groups have been gaining much more strength and power. And you can see that in legislation that's been a little bit more tenant friendly over the past two or three years. Um, but but absolutely, we we um, you know, and we we partner with nonprofits in our in this case of the portfolio Bronx with Mount Hope Housing Company. So they are ten, tenant advocacy groups, and so we. Um, you know, we're very cognizant and partner with them and we listen and work with them as well. Right. And, but these are people that have been doing this work for, you know, 30 years. Yes. Right? The, the, the tenant advocates and the housing advocates that have gained a lot of momentum mm -hmm. are, are relatively new players, aren't they? These are, these are younger people, really. Are, are, do you work with them? You know, there's two sides to it. And, um, you know, it's kind of like all landlords are bad. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, a smaller shop and, and I have to, you know, I have a family support and things that, you know, and other things too. And I think that, um, I just don't think they're hearing enough of our side of it. Yeah. Right. Related can withstand, um, you know, rent, you know, slower rent pays more than, than smaller developers can. Mm. And I just think that they're gaining strength and power. They got the politicians listening. And I think that, and then I think when they, they, 
you know, they combined all landlords. And I think you really have to segment the landlords between, you know, some of the larger ones and some of the uh, smaller developers and, and owners. So you've got a few things in the, in the works at the moment. You've got um, a project in the Bronx, uh, 82 unit project that will be an affordable housing project that you're seeking financing at for the moment. And plus, obviously you have the Manhattan project or well, the, the, the property and mm -hmm. the, the 500 units in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. How, what's the business plan and how much have you had to adapt the business plan because of the tumult and everything that's happened over the last year? Well, that's a very good question. I think that, um, you know, the one challenge on the new project is just, you know, these um, city and state budgets have been um, hit so hard because of, of that, that, you know, they, the, the project needs um, to keep it affordable, you need public assistance at the state or city level. And so there's been limited resources and a lot of projects to fund. So it slowed down, the, it slowed down uh, some development activity. Um, and that's where we're waiting to see a little bit you know, the stimulus can help and what form the states can, that money can help to um, continue to push the pipeline of affordable housing that's much more needed than ever. Mm -hmm. So adapting to longer lead time items for new construction projects that need, you know, that need funding um, at the city and state level, how I, the time frame I look forward to get funding has been extended from pre-pandemic, right? It just, you just know it's going to take a little longer, uh, or at least you anticipate it to take a little longer. Um, in terms of some of the other things I can say on some of the existing um, buildings we have, you know, if you're in the middle of financing, I mean, you know, if you're, you know, you're converting from a, you know, a construction loan to a perm loan, you know, you're paying attention to the capital markets. Um, interest rates have been rising lately. Um, and, you know, so when you're going to the, you know, to the capital markets, and you have some higher rates, obviously, uh, some flexibility um, in terms of, you um, <clears throat> Uh, amount of proceeds or whatever is um, is affected. So those are a couple of things that come to mind. So nothing's off the table. It sounds like it's just things are slowed down and things are more challenging. Yeah, I think I think very. I think I've been seeing them a lot more challenging to be honest with you. Just uh, just the uncertainty, right? And and I guess uh, you know finance one hundred and one is that the markets don't like uncertainty, right? But things feel better. You know, the front page of the New York Times today is we're turning a corner. What do you think? I mean, you're obviously a New Yorker and you're very committed to building and developing here. Yeah. What's, what would you say, where would you put your optimism level right now? Well, I would say that I am very optimistic. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, I think right now it's a, um, we're coming from a challenging time and the city needs to heal. I think that the best thing we can do is get back to work. Um, and on May 19th, when, you know, when, they, when a lot of the restrictions are released, I think that people begin to do that. Um, you know, New York is uh, one of the most vibrant cities in the world, and I think getting it back to work in itself um, is a good thing. Also, I would just say for my particular market on the affordable housing side is that know that um, the pandemic has shown big, huge inequities within New York, and um, there's no bigger way to show inequities in housing. So I think the demand for affordable housing has, has, has certainly has always been there. It is increasing. And I think people, even prior to pandemic, they're beginning to see just how housing disparities affect. So, for example, even like um, um, even when the pandemic, when students didn't have access to broadband, you know, and and, and those kind of inequities, you know, and and little, little that sounds, you know, kind of small, but it's actually, you know, it's huge, it's huge for a kid who's trying to learn. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so when I, the reason I see I'm optimistic is a lot of the the um, underlying challenges seem like they're coming to the forefront. And we're hoping that the policies and the people that 
that are making decisions um, take these into account. And that's why I'm optimistic. Do you think that it's going to stay on the forefront? You know, once people go back to work and people go back to the parties and the restaurants open and, and things seem better for a lot of people, do you think people will remember? Well, I think that that's the, when you ask me how positive I am, well, I'm very positive, but when you ask me what, um, what I see as um, a, a potential concern, and that's that, right? That, you know, these, these items are at the forefront inequities and racial inequities and um, housing, and it's at the forefront now, but I do wonder um, when we're back to normal and we're, we're, you know, in our lattes on the avenues and things like that, um, are we going to forget about some of the equities and things that have closed during the pandemic? How do you think we can stop that from happening? I think we have to continuously um, stay in a politician's ear. Um, I think our advocacy groups have to be there. I think that um, we have a couple, we have a mayoral election here. Um, I think that they can, people can make that known through the ballot box and, um, but yeah, I think that's that's how we, the advocacy groups and ballot box are probably the best two ways. I think we can keep it at the forefront. Speaking of ballot box, have you, one, have you picked anyone for mayor? Two, what are you hearing from if anyone's picked anyone in your circles? You know what, I'm, first of all, I have not endorsed anyone, right? I'm still, you know, listening. And I think that for the, for the first time I've been in New York since the 90s, I think the main thing is that I, I don't think that um, many people, I think there's more undecided people now at this point than in any time in the last two decades, at least at least in my circle, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it, it's anyone's to win really, isn't it? Well, you know, you hear that, right? I, I hear that, you know, Yang's out and leading. Um, you know, I know Ray McGuire has a very strong business acumen and some, some skills that the city can use. You have the, you know, the, the you think you wonder Brooklyn, you know, um, the borough president's running and there's the yeah. largest block in the city of New York. To me, it seems that it's um, the uncertainty. It's more uncertain at this point than it was than any other point. When you you know Bloomberg three terms and Blasio two, and you know this this mm -hmm. time seems it feels a little bit different. So people around you and you yourself aren't decided yet. They're still listening. Still listening. Yes. Keith, thank you so much. Appreciate you. your thoughts. Thank you. Keith Gordon, the managing partner of NCB Capital Partners.